Hello and welcome to E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about architecture, building science, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. So welcome back to Energy and Efficiency with Emily. Today we have the lovely BS and Beer co-host on. So we have Travis and Mike on today. And uh, behind the scenes on BS and Beer, we often talk about strategies, what topics we're going to talk about. And so lots of things come up behind the scenes. So I wanted to get these guys on to have a round table and just discuss some of the ideas and topics that come around and join you or have you join us in uh, our informal discussions and, and how this stuff lays out. So um, Travis, I'm going to have you introduce a couple of the questions that you asked behind the scenes and we'll jump right in. Oh, great. Uh, so before we got on, I was uh, asking Emily and Mike uh, to help me understand better how I could utilize cellulose uh, insulation wall systems. We, I'm in climate zone four in Kansas City. I don't typically uh, have a lot of opportunity to use cellulose. We use rock wool uh, in most of our work uh, because we self-perform. Uh, but we used to do a lot of blown-in bats with fiberglass, and I just don't see the cellulose in our market. And I think in part it might be due to the high humidity we experience here in climate zone four. I feel like we have eight to 10 months of humidity a year. and uh, it's just getting wetter and warmer. So that humidity seems to uh, be problematic for at least 75% of the year. So I wanted to see if I could uh, maybe ask the experts, you know, building science Mike over here can uh, help me out on, uh, on, on understanding cellulose uh, as an insulation option that I should be using more of uh, based on what I'm reading and seeing. And certainly because of the, the carbon crisis, I, I'm really sensitive to that. I want to leave the world a good place for my kids to live in. And uh, the idea of burning 84 tons of coal a day to make my insulation does not sit well with me. Yeah, so 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 I guess I I'm now building science, Mike. That's that's my title now. That's good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's um, the, yeah. Let's see where to start. There, there, there's a there's a lot to say say about it. I, I really don't know. Um, uh, I, I don't know all the reasons why cellulose is not more popular where you are. I know there in a in some parts of the country, it's very popular. In the Northeast, it's very popular. In other places, it's less popular. Um, but I know, I know that one of the bigger plants now is in the Southeast U.S., which is very hot and humid. Um, that, that, that's where uh, green green fiber is based. Um, uh, uh, so I'm not sure if there and cellulose manufacturing has changed over the years. Like. Um, I think I think any of us who have craw crawled around old houses in the U.S. have seen old attics that just have you know a couple of inches of you know most poop infested uh, uh, newspaper and it's it, it was literally just just sort of chipped newspaper and blown in and it would settle and compact and sort of become felt. Um, what they do now is 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 they do what's called fiberizing. They they basically chop the fibers, but then they sort of stretch them apart and twist them so it's called called fibrizing it's sort of like fluffing up each individual fiber and then they uh toss it with um well the the better quality stuff which is m most of it now they they uh combine with boric acid and mineral and and powdered mineral borate um which are naturally mined materials mostly mined in california or the or the ones we use are mostly mining mined in california um and it, it's a naturally occurring non-toxic substance that uh lens are very high degree of fire resistance but then also sort of as a side benefit 
it's uh, resistant to, to a lot of uh, insects at least and some mam and um, mammals don't like it um, but uh, fungus and mold really doesn't like it so basically if the cellulose is touching anything that it's touching is, is protected it's like it's got this sort of uh, uh, force field around it that that protects the framing protects the the the, the sheathing um, and it shouldn't it shouldn't be able to settle if it's blown in at a proper density. Um, I think that right there is uh, yeah. the biggest issue. And I think why, um, you know, before we kind of keep jumping on and, and going through is the biggest pushback, um, at least the biggest pushback that I get, and cellulose is pretty popular here, um, is that people who don't want to take on the labor intensity, because if you have a dense pack machine, it's not the same machine that you can go and rent at, um, you know, your local hardware store. Those will blow in insulation, but they don't have the capacity to dense pack in the walls. And so we often hear from people, oh, cellulose settles. And when they, I don't know if it was before or after, and maybe Mike can, can join in on that, uh, they did better with the cellulose products that they're doing. They discovered that dense packing it you know, so that it doesn't settle in the wall system is, is really great. But I think that makes it more labor. And it also makes it so, you know, your team can't do it. So I know you guys do a lot of stuff in house. So I don't know if you put in your right. own uh, rock wool. And if you put we in do. your own rock wool, you'd either have to buy another piece of equipment that would allow you to dense pack your own cellulose, or you'd have to hire a company that does dense pack cellulose. And so, um, I would say from my point of view, that's part of the pushback that we get is that not all insulation companies do it. Um, contractors who do their own insulation wouldn't have the equipment to do it. And if they rented equipment from a local hardware store, it wouldn't have the capacity to do what you'd need it to do in the wall system. So um, that's some of the pushback I think that you would get from it before we talk about moisture and vapor and any of the other stuff if we're just comparing apples to apples products it's a much better product but when we talk building science and a lot on the bs and beer show we also have to talk about installation and labor and how much it takes to to install it yeah well we've had i think on 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 travis's uh kansas bs and beer kansas city um sweet 16 wall contest we, we've had quite a bit of discussion about this we actually um just this morning uh on um uh uh somebody and i were, were going, going back and forth it was actually on um not on the one not on my my matchup but on on on, on steve bazek matching up with um, nerdy building dudes uh, it was basically a long back and forth and a lot of it was about embodied carbon um and there's just there's a lot of fine points there. I think they're important points to make, but it's like the whether or not something is high carbon, it's one thing to consider. But you know, mineral bull has a lot of good things going for it, um, and, and particularly uh, Rockwell, formerly Roxel Company, is 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 you know quote unquote greener than most uh, most other. Um, Insulation companies, from what I understand, it's also it's something you can buy locally, install yourself. It's reversible, which a lot of insulation isn't. I mean, cellulose is theoretically reversible, but I've done it. It's not a whole lot of fun. <laughs> uh, spray foam is not reversible. You know, uh, 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 fiberglass bats and rockwell bats are are reversible, which is a good thing if if you've done a lot of remodeling. You know, that can be important. It's it's 
essentially fireproof. It's non, it's essentially non-toxic. I mean, there are some minute amounts of chemicals in there, but it's, you know, c comparing mineral wool to spray foam, it's, it's, it's night and day, the, 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 the toxicity oh, yeah. level. It's got high R per inch. It's an excellent sound deadener. So, I mean, there's all kinds of good things going for it. It's just, if, if you're matching it up, like on, on Steve Bezek, uh, basically he and I both presented similar wall systems, an, an inner structural wall with an outer, with a thick continuous insulation on the outer wall minus cellulose. His has, has blown blown mineral wool, uh, which is not made by rock wool. It's, <laughs> it's not made by rock wool, formerly Roxel. It's made by the American Rock Wool Company, which is a separate company based in Texas. So it, 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 gets, it gets tricky, but, um, but anyway, it, it works well. It, it works for his system because he doesn't have to, because it doesn't, it's, it's easier to install essentially than cellulose. And that was important for him to have it be easy to install well. Um, and, and especially where you do have the, the high humidity, it, it may, it may matter. Yeah, this is a huge, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a wicked deep dive, but it's a huge bone of contention because the, and Emily and I have talked about this before. There is no one singular list that compares every single aspect in totality it's always a lot of if you look at this list it compares these factors under these conditions based on this size of project and as soon as you change any of those parameters all the numbers move so you you very rapidly go from okay well i'm going to make a comparison between uh rock wool in my walls in bat form and uh cellulose blown in there and we can do the numbers based on my local subcontractors if i was going to subcontract the insulation instead of self-perform it and then I have the cost number figured out. But what I don't have figured out is, well, if my, if my concern is carbon and I, I know that cellulose is recycled newspaper, I get that. But I also know that I live in an area that doesn't uh, have a lot of newspaper. Uh, the, the paper, the Kansas City Star is not what it once was. The Sunday paper is, uh, you know, a tiny roll when it used to be a fat stack. There's there's not a local cellulose manu or recycling facility that's producing it and then making it available to me. So it's getting trucked. It's getting trucked from recycling to the place. It's getting trucked to where they actually manufacture the cellulose. And then as Mike pointed out, they're mining the borate in maybe California. It's getting trucked. Those components have a, a, a price and then all the manufacturing and reassembly of that. And now with the additional, uh, I'm sorry, what, what did you call it? Um, the twisting of the fibers together. It had a magical process name. Fiberizing. Fiberizing. So that's all happening in a place, but none of those items are factored into this argument. Typically, what I'm seeing when I, when I have these conversations, you know, in Instagram, I usually stand back because I definitely am not the resource on this. I just know the reason why I use it is what Mike was talking about. I do a ton of remodeling. I am almost always going to be able to take that bat out and put it right back into the new wall if I decide to blow out the back wall of the house, there's not generally a reason unless it's cut too small. And even then I can put another piece next to it. So even though people talk about recycling, I can actually do it and we do. So that's a really big deal to me, but I also don't, I don't want to just do what's easy for me. Yeah. I want to do what's best for the world. So that's why I'm trying to learn more about it. And it, it, it seems like there, there ought to be um, a, a governing body. I mean, this is a place where, boy, if the federal government was a useful tool, this would be a place they could really shine where they could say, okay, we're going to unify all the data. And I know we do a lot of silly studies, but this, this one branch could do this really crucial study 
that would make it really easy to combine, oh, well, here's the information from the red list. And, oh, here's the information uh, that was compiled by, yeah, yeah. you know where I'm going with this. If there was a, a common source that had already factored all that in, that would be tremendously helpful if it were trustworthy and not to be bought and sold. And I guess until then, we'll just have to ask Mike. <laughs> Some of the things that I'm hearing recently too is that the cellulose manufacturers are starting to have plastic in them and the plastic is, you know, gunking up the machines and stuff because we don't have as much newspaper as what we had before. And so they're starting to get byproducts in it, which is why we're really excited about the GoLab basically bypassing the whole, let's turn it into newspaper, going straight to wood fiber pulp blown in insulation. 10 years ago, you know, dense packing cellulose in walls was the easiest way to cut your air infiltration by 30%. And I think that was part of the reason why a lot of us did it in the beginning. What we were doing 10 years ago may not have the same value that it does now. I, I don't know if we should talk about vapor and diffusion. I'm going to pass that one off to Mike because he's much better at explaining a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Well, so, so vapor is, uh, you guys guys know, but it's, it's just, it's, 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 it's water molecules, you know, H2O molecules dissolved or basically suspended in the air. And uh, just be, be, because of the way the chemistry works, um, you can have a material like an interior vapor retarder that stops, essentially blocks airflow, but water molecules will still diffuse through that vapor retarder. It's called a retard. It's, it, and we try to use the term vapor retarder instead of barrier because most of the membranes we use will eventually allow water molecules to sort of filter through. You can sort, sort of think of it as, as, as the molecules sort of like, uh, yeah, just, just, just squeeze through the pores. The chemistry is a little bit different, but that, that's the basic idea. If you have, um, and so that vapor, like, like most, uh, like any heat or, or other things that are going from areas of high energy to areas of low energy. So like in the Northeast here, we're primarily a heating climate. So indoors, most of the year indoors is warmer and damper, essentially. More, uh, the, the relative humidity indoors and the temperature indoors is higher than it is outside. And so that creates what's called vapor drive. Essentially, indoors is high energy, outdoors is low energy. It pushes heat and moisture through the walls from interior to exterior because it's sort of like if you if you dump out water is going to flow downhill until it levels out so that indoor air want, really 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 wants to get outside it wants to equalize um in a in a heating dominated i mean in a in a cooling dominated climate the outdoor energy the the combination of heat and humidity is higher than indoors especially when you're running an air conditioner and so that same hot you know warm moist air is trying to get through from the exterior to the interior and then in in between places like zone four and zone five, you'll have some of both. It's you know part of the time it's going in one direction, part of the time it's going going in the other direction. In Maine here, we have a, you know right now maybe a couple of months a year where it's probably more inclined to go exterior to interior um, as 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 our climate changes. We're going to see more of that. Our climate is supposed to be equal to, to Virginia's um, in, in in the next few decades, and so we're uh, we're going to see see more of that. Yeah, is is that clear so far? I know I can go down rabbit holes pretty quickly. <laughs> I feel like you did a pretty good job with that. I read uh, that Henry Gifford uh, building science book. I can't remember the title of it now, but it was really good because buildings was, don't lie. <laughs> that's it. Yes. Yeah. It's a great book, especially for people who didn't take physics in high school and college like me who are like, Oh, okay. Now I get it. Oh, so the water molecules are smaller than the air. Okay. I get it. 
So that was a really big, I guess, watershed moment where I started to understand the physics of how things are moving better. And it was tremendously helpful. But I still think that my concern with vapor almost always goes back to the idea that as builders, we always have to plan for failure. You, you always try to execute just as best you can. You use the best materials you can afford. You do your very best to put your best man on the work that needs to get done or woman on the work that needs to get done. This is the E3 podcast. I don't want to besmirch the, the finalities <laughs> of the trades. By all means, the best hands on the job to do the best job that you can, but then you still have to assume that at some point, the racking forces are going to break that sealant joint or the tape is going to fail or, or something is going to go wrong that's going to do undo all of your, your hard work and put moisture in the wall. And then it's finally going to get warm enough that it's going to go from water to vapor. And that's when I started to worry about cellulose because especially if we're dense packing and we have that connection that you're talking about where the bow rate is, the bow rate in the cellulose is touching the wall sheathing. In my mind, having been a remodeler for so long, Every time we have basically any insulation material other than um, an XPS or a, a spray foam, uh, something, something non-permeable, uh, except for Rockwell, it's always wet. It's always wet. The fiberglass, even though it's fluffy and the glass fibers don't absorb water, when it gets wet, it holds the moisture against the wood until the wood rots. And so that's what I have been worried about with cellulose is like, I want to do this. I think this is the right move, but... By God, every time I tear anything apart, if I find any point the water got in, anything that holds water holds it against the wood until the wood fails. And the structure is the wood, and that's where I end up spending all my time and money. So help me out. How do I not worry about this? So one, one, one thing to think about is um, that it appears that the insulation is holding the moisture against the sheathing. What's actually happening, as I understand it at least, is um, that basically the dew point is 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 the, the, the there's a dew point location it's, it's it's not really the best word because dew point's a temperature but it's a it's a confusing word um essentially somewhere within your wall as air it's the condensing surface is that right yes is it yes the condensing surface? yes the condensing the the condensing surface of interest is the most accurate term i've heard so your your water vapor is condensing out of the air somewhere in the middle of your fluffy insulation but it continues traveling until it hits a surface that's, that really slows it down. If it's in the middle of cellulose or in the middle of fiberglass, it doesn't, there's nothing stopping it from continuing to try to go from warm to cold or from wet to dry. Um, but when it hits that sheathing, it basically, you know, it hits a vapor retarder. It's retarding the movement of vapor and it takes a while to get through. And the bigger the uh, temperature differential and the higher the um, perm rating of the sheathing, the faster it will move through. Cellulose is, uh, come back to that, an interesting thing about cellulose or a fairly unique thing about cellulose that I believe is the same for other other similar uh, wood-based fiber insulations like the loose fill um, uh, wood fiber that Golab plans to produce. And there's also a a couple of companies now are are making a a cardboard-based cellulose and just the uh, if you look at those look at the particles on a microscopic level they're very porous essentially and so the air we use the term condensing but that's actually not the right word um, condensation is is what happens with warm air on a cold glass it just it turns into 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 liquid water when it's in cellulose it actually absorbs 
basically directly from the air goes right inside the the uh, wood fibers and then it also adsorbs which is uh, basically a single molecular layer on the surfaces of of the wood fiber those two abs absorption and adsor ad absorption and adsorption together are just called sorption <laughs> it's it's not really critical other than to just understand that once the once one area sort of starts to, be, to become saturated the wood fibers also uh very uh, has has strong capillarity and so that water it doesn't want to continue building up in that location it'll very quickly disperse and it will disperse for quite some distance it'll just it'll keep going until it finds dry, dry cells it's just like the air trying to go from high energy to low energy it's going the, the the water molecules are going from an area of high concentration to low concentration it's 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 entropy it's it's it's, it's what everything's the, seeking equilibrium yeah yeah exactly basically then it's helping spread out this damp area so it gives it more surface area with which with which to dry if in the direction that that moisture is trying to go. If it hits a surface that it can't get through, if it's going to the exterior and it hits ice and water shield, or if it's going to the interior and it hits a poly vapor barrier, it's it's gonna really slow down. And no matter how how good the capillarity is, it it won't help. But the goal is to is to use porous enough materials that it can keep pushing through. One, use tight enough materials that you're not much is getting into your wall and block airflow. So you know seal all your all your joints and so you're not um, getting a lot of air leakage too it's really just pure diffusion which much less water moves via diffusion than it does via air leaks which leads some leads some smart building science people to think it's not an issue i've seen enough problems to feel like it is still an issue it's just not as big an issue as 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 air leaks so if we give air leakage the majority of our focus and it's stopping air leakage obviously <laughs> controlling air uh, should get the, the bulk of our focus then, and that that solves the lion's share of the the vapor problems. It's it's it's, it's probably something on the order of ninety percent of, of 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 water issues in walls. It can be solved by building, by having a continuous air control layer, and it doesn't it doesn't matter a whole lot where within the assembly it is. You just want to stop an actual air leak from interior to exterior. If your airtight layer is on the, is at the is on the warm side, which which in our, our climate is on the interior, then you'll also keep, it's helping you out a little bit more, but it's, it's, it's not really, really enough to worry about. So like I found that sheathing is the easiest place for me to, to, to create the air control layer. But, but I still often, unless it's a super robust assembly, like just, you know, belt and suspenders and, and, and extra suspenders, if, if, if it's anything more like a normal affordable wall. Um, so like, like the assembly I presented for, for your wall contest, there, there's no interior membrane. Yeah. There's, there's no need because there's so much insulation on the exterior. Steve wall, there's so much insulation on the exterior. There's nothing to worry about. But any of the other ones that are starting to skimp on the exterior insulation, if you only have two inches of rock wool on the outside of a two by six wall in a zone six climate or zone seven climate, then your, your condensing surface of interest, the sheathing, will be cold enough at certain times to allow moisture accumulation. But because it's vapor open, it will continue to dry. So it's just you're, you're getting a little buildup of moisture and then it, it, it continues to dry. It's, it's a problem for both cellulose and especially for OSB, even, even high quality OSB like Zip, they can deal with a little bit of moisture really well. Um, they're not gonna rot, but over time, you know, over 50 years, if it's, if you're getting, if it's getting saturated 
say, you know, 50 times a year, over the course of 50 years, your OSB is going to swell, the cellulose is going to settle. So it's, it's important to sort of set it up for, set your assembly up for success. I think that's, that's where I get hung up, in recent history anyway. The building that's going on in my market, and certainly what we're doing now, we've, we've switched over to Zip. We were, we were long holdouts uh, with our, our Tyvek wrapping because most of our projects are small. I'm not on a 40-foot ladder trying to unfurl a giant roll. It's really easy on uh, you know, a, a one-story addition to, to roll out your Tyvek. So uh, it, it, it was a long time before we switched over, almost entirely because of cost. It just really wasn't financially, I didn't see that it was substantially better, but I also didn't know what I know now. Uh, <laughs> so with the air sealing properties and the efforts that I'm making there, it is much easier to air seal uh, with Zip. And so that's why we're using that. But the assembly that I, I threw in the contest was, I'm curious now, Mike, it was I, am I setting myself up for failure if I build that thing? Because the whole, my whole focus, the assembly that I put together for people that are listening that haven't seen it uh, is extremely basic. And it's a two by six wall, 24 on center, Roxel R23 in the cavity with zip R6 around the outside. And all the rest of the details are, stolen from Jake Bruton and uh, <laughs> Randy Williams and other people smarter than me. But the, the gist of it was, this is the low labor wall. This is my framer frames one set of walls and he leaves. Uh, he puts up the, the zip sheeting that already has the poly ISO on it. And I'm already thermally broken. I'm already taped. I'm already airtight. The WRB is already done. It's, it's one trip around the house and it's super easy. And I'm almost at R30. I'm at R29 if I ignore the, the thermal loss at every stud which of course everyone seems to do in their calculation. So I'm going to do it too. I'm calling it an R29 wall, even though it's a straight lie. I see your finger wag, Emily. You're no, right. No. You're right. No, we don't. <laughs> Emily got robbed in the contest. So we don't, we don't. Um, I, well, so, okay. So, so here's my, I like you, Dan at Rockwell, uh, but here, here's my, my big beef on the industry. And I talk about this with windows and everything is people with a big following get lots of votes. So if they don't know any different, they're going to vote for what they know. Uh, and I don't know that that's exactly. It is why a popularity I, I don't know if that's exactly why, but I think more people are used to using Rockwool than would be used to using a pan I submitted a panelization, which I get a lot of flack about panelization. Um, and B, I submitted a cellulose wall system with exterior wood fiber insulation. So I'm fully aware of that. And I also didn't have a lot of time for smack talk. So, you know, there probably could have been some more of that. That's actually one of the things I teach in my building science classes, you know, framing factor and wall systems and how your overall wall performance is not just whatever is in between those cavities. But I'm, I'm really interested because your wall system would not work here. If Huberwood would make a R6 with a vapor permeable uh, insulation, then maybe I'd be all over that. That would put the vapor barrier because R6 is basically some kind of foam. It puts it on the wrong side for us. Six is not quite enough for that wall system. But with you in zone four, I'd, and that your moisture vapor drive is more from the outside than the inside. Is it is it in the wrong place, and is it is it enough? I agree with you, uh, tra tra Travis. Um, I, I, um, when it comes to Zip and Huber in general, just I think they're a good company. They actually have a plant not too far from Emily and me here in Maine that that serves the the Northeast, and we like the wrap and 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 just they, and they make some really good products. Um, and and I found found that the, the zip system is by is just it's it's a it's a good system. You know, so some people are concerned about the long term durability of the acrylic adhesives. I understand the concerns. I don't really share them, but I I still don't mind adding a separate 
WRB sometimes just to make sure things flashed properly and easily. But anyway, that's a, that, that's a, 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 a different conversation. Um, I, I think what we're, what, we're, what we're really talking about here is how much, basically the question I'm hearing is, is how much exterior insulation is enough and, and, and there are fine points. So if it's a vapor open exterior insulation like mineral wool or wood fiber, or even thin, thinner layers of EPS foam, um, it doesn't really, it's not, it's not that it doesn't matter, it's less important what, what, your, what your ratio is because the wall will eventually keep drying. If it's not getting slowed down by, by a vapor recharger, it will continue drying. And any extra insulation is keeping the sheathing warmer, which by definition of, of the way uh, 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 moisture content works is, is works is keeping it drier. What I do to, to figure, figure it out, I actually use the building code, the IRC building code. Um, a lot of builders and architects, you know, don't like the code because they're too hard to reach. I use it as a convenient reference. This is the worst house I can build. So what's the baseline worst? And then I'll try to do better. And they're, I think they're fairly conservative. So if, if they say it's good enough, it could be. So, so th there are two different places to look. Um, the energy code, which is in the, in the IRC is chapter 11. In, in our zone six, with um, R20 cavity insulation on the interior, which is what they would assume for a two by six wall. We're only required to do uh, R5 on the exterior from a thermal point of view. The problem, and in your zone, you only have to do, um, you don't even, you're not even required to do exterior insulation. You, you can do just straight up R20 in the cavity or R13 cavity plus R5 exterior. Um, I think your zone is more forgiving because it's because because you're generally warmer. Uh, our, ours, if we follow those ratios, depending on the materials we use, that's actually a very dangerous ratio. So you go to chapter seven in the IRC table R seven o two point seven point one, which is the table for when class three vapor retarders are allowed in zones four, in marine zone five. I mean, sorry, marine zone four through zone eight we're required to do class one or class two interior vapor recharters. You guys aren't, but uh, the rest of us are, <laughs> um, which is basically poly, poly sheeting, unless uh, we have a few things. One is vented cladding, so a rain screen gap, which should be a burn minimum anyway. Um, and then for the insulation in here in zone six, we're required, uh, if, if we have a two by six wall, the exterior insulation needs to be at least R11.25. And it's not explicit in the code, but what I've heard and read behind the scenes is basically that setting up a ratio. The exterior, basically your cavity insulation is preventing indoor heat from reaching the sheathing, the condensing surface. And so you want enough exterior insulation to keep that sheathing warm. And warm, according to the IRC, apparently is 45 degrees Fahrenheit, which is if you understand how humidity and temperature work, that is barely warm enough. Like that, that <laughs> is cutting it close. And there are, are um, I've, I've not done like a therm or flexo analysis or, 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 or woofy analysis, I, I, I should say to see how this works in person, but just I, I, I follow, the, follow the IRC as the bare minimum guideline. What it means in our climate is the exterior insulation should be at least 32% of the total. Basically, it doesn't matter that, that that's the minimum is our 11 over two by six. Um, you can do an 18 inch thick wall, but you still want to maintain at least that same ratio of exterior to interior and erring on the side of more exterior is safer. One of the few issues I have with Huber is that when they say zip R6, people think it's actually R6. Uh, polyiso um, is, is an interesting 
insulation in that, um, well, all, all foam except EPS and GPS um, loses our value over time as the blowing, the, the blowing agents are actually what, what, you know, create the little bubbles and that's what is, 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 is the bulk of the actual insulation. Over time, air displaces the blowing agent and drops the R value. And polyisos blowing agents are particularly sensitive. Most polyisos blowing agents, there are different types of polyisos, but most types of polyiso, including the Atlas brand that Huber uses, as the temperature gets colder, the R value actually reduces more. Other foam, actually all other insulation, as the temperature drops, the R value actually increases. But the gist is, our R6, you should really plan for it to be really more like R5. Yeah, and I'm fine with that. My question is, not to sound like Bill Clinton here, but I, I need to define the word exterior because what I have is a zip panel with my insulation on the inside. Mm -hmm. So the dew point, I, I assumed, would be reached somewhere in the poly ISO, not on the back side of the OSB that it's glued to. Uh, and maybe I'm wrong about that. You know, I was thinking I don't actually have exterior insulation in my assembly. I have interior of the sheathing insulation. And if I'm worried about dew point, to me, I'd be worried about it on the backside of the poly ISO because it's a smooth surface mm -hmm. and it's the most likely to have a separation between my nice warm rock wool uh, that theoretically is touching every edge of the cavity because it's jammed in there with so much pressure. <laughs> uh, that's what I love about the friction fit. So I would think that it'd be touching, but still that poly ISO is the smoothest surface closest to the exterior that would be cool enough to condense. And so I felt like I have really minimized my risk. But if you tell me that I'm not right about that being interior insulation, if it's actually exterior insulation, even though it's inboard of the sheathing, then I guess I need to recalculate that. Um, I would, I would certainly submit total agree. I totally agree with, uh, Everything that I've read about what you're saying is certainly consistent um, regarding the loss of R value and poly ISO over time. And frankly, I, I'm trying to reduce my foam use everywhere I can and poly ISO is still a foam. Uh, so ideally, they would, like you said, provide a zip uh, product with uh, Gutex on the back. And then I don't have to worry about that. But as someone who has also demoed a lot of wood over time, I have still got some really hard issues with the idea of wood fiber as an insulated sheathing and i understand from what i've read about it that i i shouldn't have that feeling but anyone who's ever felt wood fibers crumble in their hand with moisture gets super nervous when they see an exterior sheathing product that appears to be like a spongy cardboard it's, it's super scary uh, we, like we had a I'm sure you guys had it too, and I'm, I'm not going to remember the word right now, but it was an exterior sheathing product uh, from the 50s and 60s that they started putting up uh, on the exterior of the frame after they would strap it, basically as a sheathing, but it was kind of the original insulation product. Help me out. It's a, it looks like cardboard, but then it's yeah, flake so, and black. What, what am I talking about? Uh, the, the brand name I know is Celotex. It's an asphalt impregnated yes, fiberboard. Um, so yeah, exactly. it's, 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 it's actually made pretty much the same. It's, it's made the same way as wood fiber insulation is. It? It's basically just thick paper. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's a really thick, low grade paper. When it's combined with asphalt, it makes a uh, breathable, semi-durable 
product. But yeah, I've I one of my first construction jo jobs in high school was uh, putting putting it up uh, underneath the whole underside of a house. So spent spent a few days on my back trying to figure out how to attach it while the, while the builder I was working for was off golfing. It was uh, I I learned to hate it pretty quickly. <laughs> but That's a great it's, job, Mike. Yeah, miss that one. I I found office work not yet, eventually, but it's uh no I mean that's that's one type of wood fiber you can actually there's a um you can still still get homosota or other fiberboard in canada there's a company making uh something in be it's it's a, has a little more structural integrity the product is eco4 i can't remember what the company is called but it's uh it goes up just like osb but it's something like r2 so it's not it's not like it's not like putting up gutex but it's it has more insulating value than your average osb um, and, and it has some share. It has it has. Have you guys some gotten to work value. with Gutex? Am I should I just calm down? Uh, is is Gutex oh, so, super safe and and stable even if you have a moisture infiltration from obviously a, an unintended failure in your WRB? Um, Gutex and other wood fiber and other rigid wood fiber insulation. So we kind of go back and forth because wood fiber is a whole class, just like mineral wool, like. Like when you say mineral wool, you just automatically assume bats, but you can also get it in semi-rigid board and blown fiber. Uh, cellulose, you can actually buy in bat form combined with polypropylene. But wood, wood fiber, Gutex is the most common brand. Um, you can get it from 475. You can, uh, there's also Styco is very similar and Golab will have their product eventually. Um, Agapan is one more, but that's no longer available here. Essentially, there are different ways to mix it, but when they're making the rigid board, which is what everybody here is, is familiar with with as as is familiar with as gutex they uh they combine it with 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 paraffin and they just keep adding paraffin until it has good moisture resistant properties to the point of gutex um ultra therm and multi therm are, are are two products that are rated as wrbs you don't need a separate wrb it's the, the, they're basically giant tongue and groove panels and 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 so you orient them so the tongues shed water and there's enough wax in them that they can shed water. I don't know any builders who wouldn't use a separate WRB just to be safe. In fact, 475, where, where you get Gutex recommends something else because it's not impervious to windblown, wind-driven water, but it's pretty, it's supposed to be pretty moisture resistant. Right. This, this is in the category. I, I try to be careful as a designer and, and consultant. I, I, I try to only really talk I'm more comfortable talking about things I've actually handled myself. And so Gutex, although I have a chunk right here, I, I have not installed this on our project myself. Um, it, it did go on a project of mine, but um, I haven't installed it myself. So I don't, I, I, I can't speak with authority about the installation properties, but everybody I've talked to says it goes up as easy, as easy or easier than foam. The uh, tongue, tongue and groove just makes putting it up as, as a cinch. You don't have to worry about where the panels fall. You just nail it up, has enough structural integrity. In fact, Ultratherm is intended to be put on instead of roof sheathing. You put on, you know, put up your rafters, put up multi-therm, strap that, put on metal or tile roofing. Wow. So it's, it's, it's pretty tough stuff. I guess I'll just calm down then. Good talking to you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> but so on the downside is it is not fireproof and it's not pest proof. There's, there's nothing in there that is pest or fire resistant. Um, with the loose brown pro products, they have borate just, just like cellulose, but with the board, because the boards are intended to do on the exterior of the house, they have different fire requirements. And so in theory, a fire shouldn't, it, it, sh it should be protected between your sheathing and your interior finishes and your exterior finishes and blah, blah, blah. It should be okay. But if absolute fireproof is important to you, then 
uh, I, I would, I would that, that would lead me towards towards mineral wool. If absolutely pest proof was important to you, it is not important yeah, to me. Yeah, <laughs> Travis, do you or people people around you often you you use use rain screen gaps? Is is that is that a common practice or is that is it a new practice? It's a hot new thing here. It is. Yeah, it's that's the trendy new thing that all the cool kids are doing. Perfect. And, uh, yeah, so I would say it's it's probably the top five to 10% of the market here. Um, the higher end guys that we like to compete against are starting to use it. Mm -hmm. We don't tend to see anything real creative. We're not seeing core event strips. We're just seeing people throw up one by four. Um, and, and I think that's fine. Uh, I was really excited to see Christine Williamson post that uh, sill sealer stapled up. Like as this is, this is ghetto rain screen. It's great. <laughs> it's super cheap and it's better than nothing. And you probably have, 600 half rolls of <laughs> sill sealer laying around in your shop. You could just go ahead and lay them up. If you're going to put LP smart side on the house, um, it's super easy. So I think it's, that's to me, that's the low barrier to entry for rain screen. It's so easy. And if you're not doing uh, exterior insulation with it, then there's really no argument against because you're just slightly adjusting the trim at the windows and the door. I mean, it's nothing. There's no reason not to do it. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm hugely in favor of it. And actually that, that brings me to another question I wanted to bounce off of you two because I've been questioning the zip and all these other things all the time lately. If we're doing a rain screen and knowing what we know about the original uh, smart vapor retarder uh, of 30 pound felt and knowing what we know about OSB being not particularly durable under conditions of moisture, should I consider just switching back to plywood sheathing, maybe some 3M all-weather flashing tape, which is a great product, at the seams for my air barrier, rolling out number 30 felt and putting up my rain screen and getting to work? It's about the same amount of money as the zip, but it doesn't have the plastics. It doesn't have OSB involved. It doesn't have some of the other concerns that I've heard it, it seems like every once in a while I get to the point where I go, oh, yeah, we're really, really smart. We figured out all this stuff. Look how smart we are. And then you discover that they had already figured this out 50 years ago and the products that we have replaced did it better or simpler or for less money for the same performance. And so I just I like to kind of look at the old stuff and go, wait a minute, was this just as good? Is this the fine system if you just do it right? If we're doing a rain screen anyway, Am I a fool to think that way? I don't think think so. In fact, a lot um, some I'd say more progressive builders up here in New England are going back to bo bo board sheathing the original uh, low maintenance, uh, long term term durability sheathing. Um, I'm still using both. Are they doing Intello inside if they do that, or how do they air barrier that? Usually, it's because you, because because you need a WRB anyway. It's 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 getting with those types of projects. Often, it's a self-adhered membrane. So Henry Blue Skin VP100 is the best known. Proclima and Sega and um, and the other companies are all coming out with with their own self-adhered versions now. So it's basically just it, it's a good quality WRB with sticky stuff on the back. So it's just like taping your whole wall in one shot. That the the builders I work with, I've, I've suggested that, and I've, and and nobody has has jumped on it yet. I'm still using Zip, but but I prefer to use Zip when it's a more 
uh, to me, it's it's a it's it's a budget friendly way to get a good assembly. It's not the ultimate best assembly. It's a good way to get a decent assembly, and I like it when there's a thick rain screen. I like it when there's exterior insulation, especially if there's enough exterior insulation to keep the sheathing above the dew point temperature. So it's a great way to get an air barrier. It's quick and easy. I, I love that OSB lays down flat just because I do still build sometimes just uh, uh, CDX. Like I didn't think CDX could have gotten worse than it was when, when I started, you know, 20, 30 years ago, but it's, it's gotten worse. <laughs> it's, it's, it goes down like a bow tie or something. I don't know, but it's, um, but on my more premium projects or because I do a lot of dense, I might do a lot of double stud walls the sheathing will get damp in late winter early spring it's just it's not if it's just it's not possible it's not a, it's not a maybe it will it's it's it will accumulate moisture from what i've 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 learned cdx should be able to hold up to repeated wetting a little bit better whether or not i'm being overly cautious it's really hard to say if you if you're using a variable permeance membrane on the interior like intello and you're airtight and you have you know an hrv or erv and humidity control it may be overly cautious but to me, it's just it's it's a more resilient system to use CDX. It, CDX is usually airtight. You just have to be a little bit careful with the football voids. Uh, 3M8067 all-weather flashing tape is a good product. It's 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 essentially the same thing as as zip, zip tape. Um, it's just zip tape has carbon black added to it. Like people think it's butyl, it's not. It's acrylic tape with sunscreen added to it, so it can stay exposed for six ninety. I, I can't remember now, three months or six months. But it's it's it, it, it's a sheet of plastic with acrylic adhesive. The eighty sixty seven is a little stickier, so you don't have to roll it the way you do with zip. Well, one thing I, I did, um, I never really got back to your question on the zip R um, in terms of, of, of where the dew point is. So, so the dew point is the temperature at which moisture will condense where the water vapor will will either condense into liquid water or adsorb or absorb if that exterior sheathing is thick enough and and it's colder outside than it is inside then yes that dew point location should be somewhere in the middle of your foam um, if it if it gets off into the into your cavity then this then the inner face of your polyiso is the condensing surface um, because zip uses um, glass fiber faced polyiso from atlas it, it it looks impervious but it actually has um, i have a note from atlas or from an atlas rep that may not maybe i'm not supposed to share it because i've never seen it anywhere else but essentially the uh, perm rating of that of the glass fiber facing is one to one and a half perms if it was foil faced it would be essentially zero but there there is a little bit of of uh moisture movement within there and it's actually not too far off what the zip sheathing itself is the coating on the zip is 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 high high perm but the zip sheathing and the polyiso are both say in the one to one and a half perm range so so which is right on the borderline of a uh, class two to three vapor retarder so 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 it is allowing a little bit of drying to the exterior but it's greatly slowing it down for sure so i guess in my climate zone four then i don't have the high risk assembly that I would if I say put a half inch of XPS on the outside of my sheathing and then just had a two by four wall with R13 in it because I, or excuse me, uh, no, I would still have the two by six wall because you, you worry about the heat from the interior not reaching the exterior to dry it out. That's part of the issue. But I guess I don't have exterior insulation. I still have yes. interior insulation only in my zip R scenario that I, or that I shared. I didn't design it. Yes. Yes. I, 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 I'd agree with your designation. It's, 
I'd, I'd say I'd say industry wide zip puts itself into into the continuous exterior insulation category because it's outside of the framing, but it's inside of the sheathing. And so, since what we're primarily worried about is the sheathing holding up, then it is an issue from a building science point of view. Actually, a half inch of XPS is vapor is vapor permeable. Um, uh, XPS has to get uh, up to about an inch to an inch and a half before it's really slowing down a lot of a lot of vapor. So you, so you're actually safe. You shouldn't use XPS because it's got really bad blowing agents, but from a vapor movement point of view, a half inch to an inch in most any climate is is not the worst thing in the world, but I would I would still avoid it. <laughs> it goes back to your comparable charts. <laughs> yes, there's so many things to compare now. I didn't read climate zone four or go through like, we need 11 point something on the outside, but in climate zone four, I'm guessing you don't need 11 on the outside. So. For for condensation six. control, they they don't require it at all. But 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 vented cladding is always, I mean, including a rain screen gap is always a good idea. And 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 what that does, back to the solar vapor drive, essentially, when you have a cladding that will absorb moisture. So like in New England, we use a lot of wood cladding. You know, the rest of the country, you're seeing well, and and here we're also seeing a lot of LP smart side or or fiber cement um, or other materials that can absorb some water. You know, the idea with, especially with the engineered ones is you're supposed to have them coated well enough that they don't absorb water. But if, if, if there's a rain and you're using like a latex paint and the sun hits it, then that solar energy is enough to push moisture into the siding. Um, and if you don't have a rain screen gap, it'll keep pushing it right through your WRB and back into your wall. So even if the, even if the temperature is outside, you know, if, even if the temperature outside and inside is saying that the wall should be drying to the exterior, on the sunny side of the house, you might have the sun pushing against you. And so you have these two opposing forces that really make moisture accumulate. So the rain screen gap basically just cuts, cuts, cuts out that, that channel. Like the sun is still pushing moisture through the cladding, but it goes into the rain screen gap. And the interior is still pushing moisture to the outside, but it just goes into the rain screen gap. And then it just, once it hits the rain screen gap, it just dissipates. So it both makes the cladding and the finishes last a lot longer and it makes your whole wall assembly a lot more durable. And it's pretty low cost. So yeah, it's, it's, it's great to hear uh, better building science through peer pressure basically is what it sounds like is happening there. <laughs> <laughs> it's magic. Magic. Did that answer all of your questions, Travis? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry to lock you both down for an hour to solve all of my uh, my oh, mental is... quandaries. No, it's great. But I do appreciate your input. We don't talk about vapor enough, and we don't talk about ventilation enough. So you know, like in an ideal world, right after you built a house, you'd run it at like 20 percent. But 20 percent is like nosebleed dry. So like nobody's living in a 20 percent relative humidity house. And so you know, trying to control the interior moisture. And then somebody gets sick and they start running a humidifier and all of a sudden the humidity on the inside of the house is 60%. And now we're pushing a lot of moisture into the wall system. And that's when I start to get really nervous. Yeah. Well, and this, and this isn't straightforward stuff. Like in the last year and a half, I've had three different code enforcement officers when I've gone in to do plan reviews, will review my plan in say 20 minutes. And then we spend 40 minutes talking about this exact thing because they don't understand the conflict in the code between the energy requirement and the vapor charter requirement or, you know, zip zip R6 is available here and the lumber yards are promoting it, but they don't understand where the limits are. And so I think there's, there's a, because you can't see water vapor, like remodelers see it after the fact, but it's not always clear exactly how it got there. Or, you know, I, I think this is a, um, as houses get tighter and as insulation gets better, it's also more important 
I mean, you know, when you have just a plain old two by four wall, it may, it may suck from an energy point of view, but you have a lot of heat energy pushing the water through so the walls can last a long time. Once you start building airtight and super thick insulation, that's great from an energy point of view. And that's what we should be doing, but it means you have to understand the science here that's going on inside the wall or else you're going to have a lot of rotten houses in 20 years. Yeah, you increase risk with these better assemblies. Yes, exactly, which is unfortunate. Because then the easiest thing to say is, well, I'm not going to put myself at risk. I'm going to build a, uh, a, a, an, an easy assembly, but it's... Crappy, it's leaky house. <laughs> and we made you ask your questions. Uh, and so you said you wasted an hour of our time, but you didn't waste any of our time because <laughs> there are probably a million people oh, out good. there who have the same question. And, you know, it's applicable to our time. And when do you not want to get on with hashtag building science, Mike? <laughs> I like it. <laughs> it's a unique opportunity. I had to take advantage of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Next time we talk, I, I almost was going to spring this on you guys as a quiz. Uh, my quiz question was going to be uh, best educational opportunities for people who want to improve as designers or builders. Uh, you know, is it training? Is it pursuing a certification? Is it a trade show? And I don't know if we have time to do that, but I feel like you guys are both as highly educated and certified as anyone that I know. And I would just be curious to know what you both have gotten the most out of, what you would recommend. I have actually been doing a one-on-one -on -one training with another architect who doesn't have a lot of building science knowledge. And um, she wanted to understand a lot more about building science, kind of went down the rabbit hole with Green Building Advisor and the internet and trying to figure it out and do certifications and training and, and that kind of stuff. And um, so we started doing one-on-one. -on -one. And I think that there could be a, a nice potential to do a mastermind group where people would get together and be able to, you know, have a session like this where they could ask questions where, you know, maybe you have a couple of professionals that join it, um, especially in your climate zone specific and uh, ask questions because I'm a hands-on learner. So um, as far as building certifications and that kind of stuff that I've done, the more stuff I can do hands-on, take apart a wall system, see it in real life kind of training, the more likely I am to remember it. That would be, that would be somewhere where I'd like, you know, maybe 10 to 12 people in a mastermind on building science. It's not, it's not a certification. It's just like, it's all raise our building science knowledge. What have we done? What experiences are we seeing? You know, and, and people who uh, are in the renovation world, like I took this apart and like, this is constantly an issue in our area or, you know, pretty good house. We're going to keep updating that, right, Mike? <laughs> yes, for sure. Yeah, no, and I'd, I'd say along those lines, I think the hands-on stuff um, I know works best for me. Um, I'd say um, one of the biggest learning experiences for me was maybe 10 years ago, um, I had a couple of design projects that we needed to do energy audits, and I tagged along with the energy auditor and bugged them with a lot of questions, which... I've, I've always ever since I started in the trades, um, whenever I meet a new tradesperson, I just I try to learn something new. I don't want to waste their time, but a plumber will always tell me something I, don't, I didn't know. An electrician will always tell me stuff I didn't know. So following, following a, an, an energy auditor around, they have the blower door set up and the thermal camera. And just, it was, it was like, looking back, it wasn't like, it's all, it's all stuff that seems second nature now, but at the time it was pretty mind blowing. Um, just to say, whoa, you, like there's that much air coming through this outlet. Whoa, there's that much leakage around a window that wasn't cocked. And just, I think that's, so for a few hundred dollars, you can do an energy audit of your own house, or if you're a builder, you could have your project energy audited, but you know, just, just just follow them around. Don't just look at the report, walk around with them and see what they're doing. And Emily does this, so I know she can. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, or as a energy auditor, uh, if you really just want to know some things, 
find one in your area and volunteer for a day or something to just be their extra set of hands. Because I've done a lot of energy audits over the years. And Mike is totally right. And I'm glad that he brought that up because uh, I learned everything I knew in the initial building science from Cheryl Shattenberg, just following her around for three months. I wasn't allowed to do anything else. It was a new job for me. And I literally just followed her around for three months. And it was the best training that you could ever possibly get into. We went in every type of house. We went all over. And as an architect, it was fascinating because we went in all different kinds of houses. And you're like, oh, how'd they put that together? Um, but just following her around. And then as I became an energy auditor, did more certifications, did a lot more. Um, I would walk the homeowner through what I was doing. And every once in a while, I'd, ha I'd show up at a house and someone would say, where's the rest of your team? And energy aud auditing is usually a one person deal. Then they'd be like, I don't know, you look really young. I'm not sure you know what you're doing. When I was doing energy auditing, it was enough for me to just explain to them what was going on. So if you found an energy auditor in your area and you followed them around, they're going to give you a heck of an education as you just walk around the house. You know, like my favorite thing, people, homeowners following me around is like the cobwebs in your house are not a sign that you didn't do a very good job cleaning your house. That's just where air leakage comes in. And they're like, what? Whoa. You give them an excuse not to clean. It starts off great. You know, and the, and the uh, you put your you you put your infrared camera up and you shine it at the window and every kid that's following you thinks they see ghosts. It's the best thing ever. <laughs> you know, you just show them their dog prints on the floor. You know, there's some just some really fun stuff um, with energy auditing. But yeah, that's a that's a great point, Mike. Is is if nothing else, if you could find an energy auditor in your area and just be willing to be the the guy or gal that lugs the blower door inside and takes all the equipment out of the car and does all of that stuff uh they would probably let you follow them around that was how i learned um maine has a lot of really old heating systems <laughs> that was how i learned a lot about really old heating <laughs> systems i think this is why i'm a heat pump pro heat pump like there's some really nasty, really disgusting, really old heating systems. Yes, for sure. Yeah, no, and and if you want to do more more of a program, that um, um I don't have anywhere where near the uh, number of of certifications Emily has, but but the uh, pro program I did that I, I think is a good value. It, it's expensive and a commitment, but if you do passive house training, uh, whether mm -hmm. um whether it's the international version or FIAS, which is the U.S. version, they're, they're similar but different. But e either way, it's a it's an established program, and they've put a lot of effort into getting a lot of building science into essentially two weeks of school. I mean, it's, it's the equivalent of at least a college semester, probably two college semesters of information, I'd say, and they feed it to you with a fire hose. So you have to have a certain level of, of, uh, of ability going in. But if you, if you, if you learn the basics, then you can really get to another level quickly uh, learning passive house and it's, an, it's, an esta it's established and recognized um, you know as, as, a, as a thing but it's a couple of weeks and a couple of thousand dollars and it's 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 sure. it's not easy but it's it's um, I think it, I think it was good information for me anyway that sounds like a good fit for me too do you guys follow uh, emu uh, do you know uh, Mariana at emu systems in Colorado they do uh, passive house training in-house oh, I think so yeah yeah yeah, uh, I was looking at that as something that we might want to pursue for uh, Joe and I, my, my business partner. We talked about either getting uh, our BPI or our HERS rater this year, and we were trying to decide what to do. And it's like, ah, oh, let me ask some people who know all about this, and I'll mm -hmm. find out the best advice. So 
Yeah, and I would say so. I have all of those. Um, <laughs> I've done them all. Oh, okay, not favorite? all of them. Not all of them. Um, okay, so I think that hers is probably most applicable to what I do. Okay. But that is because I think hers is most applicable to new homes, new construction, and really getting down to that whole zero energy, whatever, and being able to kind of prove that. I say that I took the passive house course because I went and I said, you have to teach me something I don't already know. I'm sure you're going to. The guy teaching the class was like, why are you here? And, and I did learn more about heat pumps, more about thermal bridging, and more about windows, which was interesting. BPI is renovation work. Hers is a lot more new construction work. Passive house is you already understand the basics about building science and you want to get really knowledgeable. I thought that the passive house course that I took, and it could have just been the way that I, that it was structured was much more architect heavy, but the place where I took the passive house exam also had a contractor passive house where they built wall systems and they took apart the previous classes wall systems. So it was like hands-on, here's the tape, here's where we put this window. This is how we installed it. This is why we put it in the middle. Here's all these sticky things that work together and I almost wish that I would have taken that. Okay. That's really good wisdom from people who have done all of this. So hopefully that wasn't a question that was just for me. I bet there are a lot of people wondering the same thing. So that's great. I started out with local energy auditing and BPI because that's what I was doing back in 2009. All people were doing was renovation work because there was no such thing as being an architect in new construction in 2009. Like it just, I mean, there was, but like it kind of just didn't exist. So that was where I started. <laughs> and I think that was a great jump for me into what is building science? Just to understand the basics of science. If you're already past that, then skip that one and go on to, you know, if you want to start designing, it, it might be good. I know you work with a local architect a lot. It might be good for her to do that one because I know that you said that you don't always have a lot of um, you don't have a lot of input or say once it gets to you. So you kind of laugh at me where I'm like, we just put less windows on or we change the orientation or we do this. And you're like, I don't have any say on that until it gets to me. The client is invested in whatever it is when it gets to me. Yeah, I, I have a voice, but it's usually not carrying the same weight. Like often when by the time the plan gets to me, everyone's already in love with it. The client is pretty much sold on this is what we're doing. And so if I come in and undercut the architect, I feel like that's bad form, even if there are things that I don't advise. So I try to be really tender in those moments and just be like, well, you know, this is a really nice plan. I'm really excited about it. And, you know, if we go forward, maybe there are some things that we might talk about if you're interested. You know, it's, it's I don't know. I, I, I'm not totally silent, uh, and we actually do a fair amount of um, what I would consider layout, not really design, uh, where we're we're organizing spaces, rearranging rooms within the cell. It's usually when we ch when we change the elevation substantially, uh, and it becomes multiple roof planes and things where I really am worried about: is this going to look good in the neighborhood, and is everyone going to be happy with it? Certainly, front elevations. I, I am always like, ah, I'd rather we talk to the architect, but. You know, when I'm doing a kitchen addition or a master suite, I knock those out. Usually that involves about five windows. So I don't really, I would, there are not too many to cut in those. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And the only reason I say with the hers, uh, you know, and, and the architect is I energy model 
all of my projects, which you can do with Beopt and you can do that with, with some of the other ones, but like, it's a really great design tool in the beginning. Cause you'd be like, Oh man, I got way too much South facing glazing, or I've got you know, way too much of this or that. And so it kind of helps to, to solidify the idea that you have. Would you consider putting those classes that you're teaching on the pretty good house website as a resource for people? Is that a viable, that might be something that people not in your area would enjoy uh, access to. That's my quarter two goal, oh. Travis, as you as you point out that I'm working, which is training. So it's why I started doing training uh, with the other architect. I give her a reading list, she reads it, and then we get together and she gets to ask all the questions she didn't understand from the That's book, great. Which is basically <laughs> what we do. She's like, there's so much information on the internet, I don't know where yeah. to start. And you have so. to, if it's on the internet, you definitely have to wonder about the credibility of it. So it's better to have reliable resources like Emily and Mike that you can actually bounce that off of. Thanks for the mastermind class today, guys. Thanks for joining me today, Mike and Travis. It's always a pleasure to have both of you on. Catch the three of us on The BS and Beer Show on Thursday nights. You can go to thebsandbeershow.com to sign up for a live event or go to the BS and Beer Show YouTube channel to watch previously recorded events. Also, if you're liking the podcast, please like and share. Send me an email, emily at matramarch.com, if you'd like to suggest a topic or a guest that should be on the podcast. Again, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.